Welcome to Taneo Insights, a podcast that provides in-depth analysis on the issues that matter most to CEOs and their businesses. I'm your host, Kevin Kajawara, co-president of Taneo's political risk advisory business. Let's get started. In Taneo's global CEO survey, which we issued back in December, 86% of CEOs suggested that they believe deglobalization is a reality for the global economy and that it is a process that was already underway. However, only about a half of those uh, surveyed thought that it will be a significant event uh, and are adjusting their supply chains. And only about a third claim to be relocating physical operations or onshoring their workforces. The rationales that are driving this phenomenon are, are myriad, of course, from national security to resilience and redundancy of supply chains to the obligations of meeting sustainability and carbon emission targets. One variable that is not a rationale, of course, uh, when changing supply chains to this degree would be lower cost. Another argument for the case that we may be in for structurally higher inflation, uh, that monetary uh, policy alone won't be able to control. And of course, any conversation about trade and globalization and supply chains, um, you, we, can't, uh, we can't ignore uh, the role that China has played in structurally bringing down and keeping down inflation over the last 40 years. And I would just note that um, uh, as China re-emerges from zero COVID and the pandemic lockdowns, um, costs are dropping um, considerably. A year ago this month, it cost about $10,000 to send a shipping container from Shanghai to the U.S. West Coast. That's now about $1,000. Um, and given that we've been in a trade war since 2018 and we've seen deteriorating bilateral relations between the U.S. and China, it's also worth noting that U.S.-China trade hit an all-time high in 2022 of $691 billion. So what does all of this mean? Uh, to help us think through this, I'm joined today by Shannon O'Neill. Shannon is the Vice President, Deputy Director of uh, Studies, and the Nelson and David Rockefeller Senior Fellow for Latin America Studies at the Council, for For Council on Foreign Relations. Uh, she is an expert on global trade, supply chains, uh, Mexico and Latin America generally, and democracy. Uh, and in her former life, she was actually a Wall Street equity analyst as well. And she is the author of a new book, The Globalization Myth, Why Regions Matter, Council on Foreign Relations book out from Yale University Press. And so I'm delighted to have Shannon on the show today for the first time. And congratulations on the, uh, on the book, Shannon, and welcome. Thanks very um, much. Great to be here. We appreciate it. And, um, you know, I think you and I both agree, before we can really discuss where things are going with regards to trade and uh, the concept of globalization, it, it, it's worth taking a minute, um, I think, to figure out how we got where we are. Um, and indeed, um, to discuss exactly where we are, maybe to demythologize, if I can borrow from your book a little bit here, demythologize a bit about what globalization even really means. Um, so maybe we can start with, with that and what, what prompted you to write this book right now. Well, thanks, Kevin. And I think that is a good place to start, right? And, and you know, the title of the book is The Globalization Myth. And to me, there's sort of two big myths that we have today, if I, if I can use that word. And, and the first is when you listen to the news or, or you know, you look at what's going on at Davos or other places, and there's the sense that globalization has been widespread, that it's been all penetrating, that it's transformed our world. And, and you know, it has in some places, but when you dig into the economic data the last 30, 40 years, there are only about two dozen countries that have truly transformed their economies with trade. So there's only 25 countries that have seen trade as a percentage of GDP double or more since 1980. And in contrast, there are dozens more, there are 89 to be precise, where trade as a percent of GDP stayed the same, it stagnated, or it even declined. So there's a good number of countries that over these last 30, 40 years have actually deglobalized. So the so one myth is that globalization is, is penetrating and it's encompassing. It, it just isn't, right? There's not that many countries that participated. There's many more countries that really didn't participate in this transformation of the last 30, 40 years. So that's one side. The other side is that when companies and money and suppliers and people in search of customers went abroad, and they did. We saw trade jump from $2 trillion in 1980 to $22 trillion today. So we've definitely seen a huge increase in trade. But when they did, they didn't go just anywhere. And more often than not, they didn't go to the other side of the world. They didn't globalize. Sure, some did, and we can point to the companies that, that do. And you know, there's lots of big brand names that we know, Boeing or Coca-Cola, and you can name some others. 
But more often than not, thousands of companies, tens of thousands of companies when they went abroad, they just went next door or very nearby to look for suppliers, to look for customers, to look for sourcing and the like. And you know, one data point that really brings us home is that the average good that is traded internationally travels 3,000 miles. So that is about the distance from New York to Los Angeles. That doesn't get you across either of the Atlantic or the Pacific Ocean. And I think that really brings home that, yes, we've seen some globalization, but much less and fewer countries have participated. And two, when we've actually seen in this internationalization is more regionalization than globalization. Right. So and then in, in terms of where we are right now as well, is it fair to say, too, though, that that global trade in goods has topped out, right? Um, and whereas trade in di you know digital trade, trade in services continues to um, continues to grow, but just in terms of in terms of of goods trade, where do we where do we stand? Yeah, we've definitely seen a slowdown in goods trade over the last not just since since COVID, but really since the financial crisis, since two thousand eight two thousand nine, sort of a, a leveling out of of global goods trade. Now it's still there and it's still pretty significant, um, but it hasn't been growing faster than the overall economy or not many years where it has. Services are growing much faster, that's true, and partly because they were a smaller part before, services have been less open and so there's more room to grow. It's easier to grow 10% if the base is smaller, as we all know, and so that's part of the services trade. Um, and you know, we also are seeing there, you know, we see cloud computing, we see digitization, we see education. There's lots of different parts to services that, that are growing and some of them rebounding, especially the in-person part of services, tourism and education is rebounding after being closed for two plus years with, with COVID. So, so that too is part of this change. And you know, the services side of global trade um, is a bit more international. It's not quite as regional. But interestingly, it's still more regional than you would think because it doesn't cost anything to send a file to the other side of the world, right? It doesn't send anything to, to zoom in here on, on a podcast or others, but, but people tend to do it in a regional manner, right? People tend to, when they read news from abroad, it tends to be uh, from their neighbors. When people, you know, when consultants and accountants and others, sometimes they go to the other side of the world, but, but more often than not, they tend to stay stay closer to home, to countries that, that are nearby. Um, and often services follows manufacturing or goods, right? They're not totally separate streams. And so, sure. you know, if you're producing in a country nearby, then your marketing and your accounting and your finance and everything stays pretty close to home. So, so we are seeing, and geopolitics enters here too, right? You can't find Facebook and Google and other things in China and vice versa in other places, in part because the geopolitics doesn't allow really the global spread of particular services. Yeah, you know, you talk at the beginning of the book about what sort of drove, um, you know, drove industrial in, in, industries to move beyond their original hubs, even let's say within within a country like the United States, as an example, that tech, you know, new technology elsewhere was a pull. Organized labor could, uh, you know, could pull companies to to areas of the country, say further in the South in the U.S. that weren't as uh, weren't as labor heavy uh, as union heavy uh, as say in the uh, in the North. Um, but, you know, you, you, would, would you say that, you know, the big driver of what we think of as globalization, which is this sort of all-encompassing term, but, you know, you sort of laid it out there, right, that you were, it, it allowed the taking advantage of global labor rate differentials, global supply chain, um, global, you know, free movement of capital, free movement of resources and the like, but what it did was it built this sort of just-in-time system um, that works absolutely perfectly in keeping costs low until something <laughs> interrupts it, like a pandemic or like a war or deteriorating bilateral relations, as an example. But would you argue that has, has a lot of low-hanging fruit in terms of the efficiencies to be gained been gained um, al already? In other words, are, are the returns diminishing? Well, I think there's two parts to this here. So, so one is this last round of globalization. I mean, globalization has happened many times, right? The Silk Road that my kids study in school was way back when that was globalization, right? Before, you know, the Industrial Revolution had globalization, before World War I. This kind of post-World War II, you know, end of the 20th century into what we are today, this is really a globalization. And how it's different than previous ones is global supply chains. 
countries are sending out not just commodities or not just finished goods, but they're sending out pieces and parts, right? They're sending out components that go and combine with others. And across countries, you're making manufactured goods or services that allow you to really specialize, that allow you to gain economies of scale, that allow you to gain cheaper labor in some cases, um, or more specialized labor than you might in, in other places. Um, and that is what has allowed us over these last 30, 40 years to be so prolific, um, so innovative, um, and also so affordable for so many things. So, you know, China coming to the market is a big part of it, but it's also this divvying up of the various parts along the production process that allowed so much innovation and things to be so cheap, right? Um, and, and that has lots of different elements to it. So it is, it is going for, you know, the most efficient in some cases, but there's other aspects to, I would say, to the supply chain that has formed and a robustness that, that is there as well and allows economies of scale, allows this learning in ways that if it's just happening in one place, you don't get so much of that specialization. And so, so given all that, you know, you get a, a shock like COVID, right, a once in a century lockdown of, of supply as planes are grounded and ports closed and we all, you know, hole up in our, in our you know, houses or apartments or what have you. You get a once in a generation demand shock, people just start buying different things, right? They no longer want luggage, they want leisure wear, they want laptops and, and the like. Um, and then you have a logistics system that too has, has been hit so hard and, you know, freighters are on the wrong side of the ocean for where demand and supply are and all of that. And so it showed us one, the weaknesses of supply chains for sure, right? This fragility and the worries about just-in-time delivery and, you know, there isn't a semiconductor so they can't build a car on the other side of the ocean for, for months. But I would say actually for companies, for CEOs, for board of directors, it cuts both ways because also interestingly after COVID, lots of things disappeared in those first few months, but within a few months, the things that we cared about were back on the shelves and many supply chains were able to scale up or scale down given demand. So, you know, after a few months, toilet paper was back on the shelves, you know, after a few months, hundreds of millions of masks and PPE were flowing around the world for a product that, you know, at least here in the United States, few people had ever thought of if you didn't work in the healthcare industry. And then we were, now we had boxes of boxes of them in our home. And so I do think the lessons of the last two years are, Yes, there are fragility to global supply chains. Yes, there are challenges and you need to build in resilience, but also actually global supply chains can be very robust and they can adjust in ways that you can't if you just produce in one place because you just can't scale up and scale down if everything's made in Wichita or everything's made in Wuhan for that matter. So can I just pick up on this point for one second here and hear what your thinking is right now um, on that? You know, putting aside for a second things that are, are of geopolitical or national security measure uh, nature, like uh, chips, as an example, but, but let's let's focus on the toilet paper issue for one moment, right? Um, do you think that uh, you know, if we were to have another pandemic-type shock, um, that we would we're better suited to keeping those types of staples on the on the shelves, or is this process just getting underway? Uh, really, and how long is that going to, you know, now that things have sort of returned to normal, is that momentum continuing, uh, as far as you can tell, and from the data, and it, at what kind of speed? And I know we're talking generally here, so it's a, it's a challenging to answer, but. It is, because each, each supply chain is its own animal, and it yeah, has its own challenges and fragilities. But I guess what I would say, if I was a toilet paper maker, or I was, you know, a maker of, of basic goods, that, you know, I'm sure, you know, lost a few years of my life and my hair went gray during the supply chain crisis and I couldn't get things moved around. But, but three, six months out, I would probably be patting myself on the back and say, you know what, we solved that problem. We moved from industrial toilet paper that went to restaurants and went to institutions to the kind that consumers buy because nobody's showing up at the office anymore. Everybody was buying at home. That we found a way to move around and maybe we moved within a factory and we rejiggered our machinery. Maybe we moved to a different country because certain places couldn't do it or weren't open to the world, but you were able to use these supply chains to, to for many of them, not all of them, but many of them, they were actually much more robust than, than we think. So 
the idea of a supply chain that you would, you know, you're not going to reshore everything or bring it or say, I'm just going to produce for Europe and Europe or, you know, France for France and U.S. for U.S. or Mexico for Mexico. That I don't think was the lesson anybody learned. What people did learn is that I need to be ready in a moment to adjust. So I need to think about a backup plan because, you know, one country might shut down because there might be a pandemic or there might be a, a protest or there might be a natural disaster or, or whatever it is. And, and so beginning to think a little bit more about resilience perhaps than boards of directors normally did, right? That these things, these once in a generation or once in a century events, they actually happen. And so we should be thinking a bit more. But except for a few industries, I would say, I actually think that, you know, some people are probably patting themselves on the back that they figured out, you know, what was, you know, kind of that black swan, they, they came through it okay, right? Now, that leads aside, you, you put to the side the national security type of, of supply chains. And I think the interesting thing is so many things are now national security supply chains and more and more are getting added to the list. So, you know, maybe not toilet paper, but lots of other things that we wouldn't normally think of are getting added to geopolitics, which does fundamentally change how fragile or how robust supply chains are in ways that I don't think we, we were really thinking about 10 years ago. So we'll come back to this point because I think the cost of all of this is an, is an important one to think through for, for companies and for governments alike. But I want to go back to something you said at the very outset, um, which is, you know, sort of the myth of globalization was that it well, everything was going far away, jobs were going far away, and the stuff that was coming back was coming from far away. Um, and you sort of debunked that a little bit by talking about, and, and the bulk of your book is a lot of it is devoted toward defining these major manufacturing uh, and trading regions, Europe, Asia, and North America. Um, and you make some interesting points in there. One, of course, that, you know, Europe's, uh, Europe as a hub, kind of the, the product of two world wars, um, and uh, Asia didn't have to go, go through that, a different dynamic there. But sort of perhaps the most, um, most interesting is that relative to the other two, uh, North America is a little bit behind the curve. And then actually all things considered, the United States remains one of the more um, closed economies in the world. Trade as a percentage of GDP is less than half of the world, uh, less than half of the world average. Talk a little bit about, I guess, you know, how these hubs developed, number one. But number two, more importantly, for going forward, you know, what the lesson is then for the U.S. to how to capitalize. It sounds like then there's more, there's more to gain in a, in a sense if the U.S. and its partners in Canada and Mexico play it right. What do they have to do? And is the politics actually aligned with allowing that to happen in the current, you know, environment? Sure. Well, yeah, what's interesting, and let me just put a few numbers on it, because I think that really brings it to light. So when you look at Europe, probably about two thirds of trade and money, lending, finance and, and the like occur within Europe. So, you know, Europeans make things together and they buy things from each other. In Asia, you look back at 1980, about 30% of trade was within Asia. That has grown to today where it's 60%. So 60% of trade stays within Asia today. So they make things together. They did back in the 80s and 90s as well. But today they also sell things to each other and increasingly do as you know Asian middle-class consumers grow and, and, and the like. And money too has flowed with that. In North America, in, in, you know, between Mexico, the United States and Canada, you know, on the eve of NAFTA in the early 90s, about 40% of trade was between Mexico, the United States, and Canada. In that first decade of NAFTA, it rose to 47, 48%. So almost, you know, one out of every $2 or one out of every two pesos was within North America. And then in the 2000s, it fell back down. So we really de-integrated um, back down to about 40%. So still pretty regional. Uh, and when you look at Latin America, Africa, South Asia, the Middle East, only 10, 15% of trade is with their neighbors. So when they trade, they trade out with the rest of the world. Um, so North America is more integrated than that part of the, those parts of the world, but they're much less integrated than Asia and Europe. And I would argue that some of the commercial challenges the United States have had, some of the challenges of the communities who have lost factories or lost jobs has been due to this more limited regionalization. And, you know, what has happened in, these various places in Europe, as you mentioned, you know, it was a very top-down process. It was post-World War II, European diplomats got together, statesmen and women and said, okay, let's sign some treaties. Let's make sure everybody has access to coal and steel. Now let's get rid of tariffs. Now let's get rid of regulations. Now let's form one currency. Now let's form one passport. You know, they 
Treaty by treaty, they created the European Union. So very top-down, very driven by politics and, and politicians or, or diplomats. Asia is a really different story. It's not about free trade agreements. It's not about those things. It's really about CEOs and going out and outsourcing. So first it was the Japanese in the 1960s. They had run out of labor after World War II and the, the boom that had come. And so they started putting factories in, at the time, very poor Taiwan and South Korea, uh, Singapore and the like. Those countries began to grow and prosper and gain technology. And so later on, they went and outsourced and you know put factories in Vietnam, in China, and Thailand, and other places. So you see this, you know, governments helped by building infrastructure. You could see overseas development assistance would build a port so the Japanese could get their, you know, their goods in and out of, of South Korea and the like. But but it was really driven by companies creating these supply chains. And North America, I would say it's been a little bit of a Goldilocks middle, but not in a good way, right? We have NAFTA and now USMCA. So there are rules, there's a free trade agreement, but it's not nearly as deep as the European agreement, right? It gets rid of tariffs, it provides investment guarantees, but it doesn't do very much for regulations. We still have lots of regulations between, between the countries that are very difficult to make things to sell on the other side, even if you don't pay tariffs. Um, one of my favorite examples here is if there are Cheerios that are made in a factory in Canada, they can't be sold in the United States because, you know, FDA regulation. So, you know, but think about that, thousands and thousands of examples of that. Even if you don't pay tariffs, it's very hard to sell to each other. Um, so you don't have that. And then on the sort of comparison to Asia, particular sectors, particular industries have created very robust supply chains. Automotive has been, you know, the biggest one where you see very tight regional networks that have made automotive companies in North America very competitive. Um, aerospace has some links as well, some machinery, but, but many fewer than Asia. And I think that's partly why you saw apparel and shoes and electronics really decamp for Asia because they were so robust and so strong in Asia through the movement of companies that it was hard for the United States or Mexico or Canada alone to compete. And they just didn't form that that network. Um, so that challenge is also an opportunity. If you saw more robust supply chains develop across North America, if you saw more industries participate here, led by CEOs or perhaps led by government policy um, to sort of instigate it or, or incentivize it, um, then I think you could see more jobs, you could see more economic activity, you could see more dynamism, and you could see more integration in North America as you have seen in Asia and in Europe. So, you know, you talk about the top-down effect in, 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 in Europe, um, but the, really the, the initiative of individual companies and their leaders um, in, in, in building this, this robust economic picture in a relatively short period of time um, in, in, in Asia. And now we're at this moment where there's almost this perfect storm, right? I mean, the, the, the shortcomings of a just-in-time supply chain exposed by the pandemic uh, plus the imperatives now of national security and geopolitical concerns with the U.S.-China relationship in deterioration and the, you know, and the demonstrated sort of, you know, lack of um, reliability of the uh, energy supply chain from Russia into Europe as, uh, as examples. So you have both this kind of top-down as well as a corporate kind of um, momentum to, to, uh, to make change, I guess, do you see that happening on this on the North America picture right now? You talk about the regulatory hurdles to prevent Cheerios from Canada being sold in Minnesota. Is, is there can that change, or does the politics about trade though right now also create a hurdle that maybe doesn't help? So I think there can be some changes. Others I'm a little bit more pessimistic about, I, I have to say. Um, and the politics or trade are, are part of it. Um, I mean, one thing I will say is before COVID, you started to see supply chains, people beginning to think about moving them around. In fact, I was in China in, in 2019, um, right before COVID, and interviewing supply chain managers for the book. And already most of them, many of them, were discussing where they would go next. Um, and, you know, yes, we'll keep in China and we'll have a footprint here and some extra capacity will be here, but but almost all were at least thinking about other places. And there were, you know, a number of reasons. One is, you know, auto, depending on the industry, automation was becoming a much bigger part of the overall, you know, operating costs. So labor wasn't as important in terms of their operating costs, right? They were, you know, bringing in robots or software or algorithms and the like. So that was quite important as they thought about their footprint. 
Um, I mean, another is, as we all know, China's demographics are changing and China isn't as cheap as it once was. So if you were, if your model is about low cost labor, then China may not be the place for you. In fact, you know, you'd want to be more sophisticated there if that's where you're going to stay or that's where you're going to expand. So people were thinking about that for various parts of it. Um, you know, you're also, we're seeing some people begin, which I think has continued and even accelerated with COVID, um, where the distance of the Pacific, if you're serving the U.S. market at least, is that you know time costs money more than it had before and so you will lose orders if you have to wait six weeks for even in normal times not in COVID times you know the boat is coming across the ocean and so bringing things closer it might cost a little more to produce but if you can get stuff there in, a, in two weeks versus six weeks all of a sudden you'll have more more sales than you would have so i think there's a lot of things that were already changing um, and then COVID and geopolitics really really began to change all of those all of those calculations and so what does that mean for the United States, right? And here I think it gets into the geopolitics and the um, perhaps unusual, but I think uh, the beginning rather than the end of government involvement in the U.S. economy, at least in areas where you know the U.S. government deems it of national security interests. And so, you know, we have seen this on a bipartisan level, right? It's not just one side or the other. We have seen the government uh, willing to put forward hundreds of billions of dollars. Um, trillions of dollars if you count in infrastructure spending, right? We have a big infrastructure bill. We have a chips bill, which is about semiconductors and raw materials, you know, uh, critical minerals and the like. We have the Inflation Reduction Act, which is, you know, $370 billion for, for green technologies and the like. And so you are seeing a U.S. government that is uh, ambitious uh, and quite eager to reshape parts of the economy. Um, in, in different ways and to one, make it less dependent on China and, and Asia more broadly in places where they feel national security is at risk and that's broadly defined. Um, and two, as they do this, and then also, you know, deal with issues of climate change. Um, so bring the green transition and, and get us to a different kind of energy matrix that doesn't produce as much, you know, carbon into the environment. Um, and then other issues like domestic equity, creating good jobs, you know, buy American clauses, there's a lot of that in there. So. Bringing this all together, there's sort of a double-edged sword, I would say, for North America. Some of this legislation actually writes in North America. So the Inflation Reduction Act, we're going to make electric vehicle cars here and batteries. That allows for assembly across North America. You know, Mexico and Canada are under the umbrella there of Buy American. It's really Buy North America. Other, you know, the CHIPS Act has some money, too, that could go international, and, and perhaps the neighbors are those who would benefit because of proximity to where, you know, semiconductor fabs or packaging facilities are going up, so you could see some benefits there. But some of this legislation is pretty protectionist. It's only by American. It's only steel from here. It's only cement from, from the United States that will qualify for the subsidies um, or, or the kinds of infrastructure that's going to be built. So, so you know, the politics of this, I, I worry regulations are a tough, uh, tough to overcome. Um, but I also see this other imperative from the U.S. government, the national security imperative, you know, they're struggling with, do we want to keep our regulations? Do we want to keep our PIM rating and licensing? Or do we want this to happen faster? And if we want it to happen faster, then we're going to have to open up to more countries than just our own. And we're going to have to streamline some of the regulatory bases and permitting and licensing that slow down, you know, the opening of critical mineral mines or processing and the like. So let me, this raises a couple questions I wanted to ask you about. And I know you're a, a trade specialist and not a, a monetary policy specialist, but you know, I, I do wonder when you talk about these things, right? You're talking about massive industrial policy on a scale, you know, we haven't seen in quite some time in this country, and we don't really see globally, with the exception of uh, of China, at the same sort of uh, absolute dollar level. Um, but you know, protectionism is inherently, you know, uh, not cost suppressing, right? Um, on the one hand. So you've got kind of populist, uh, you know, populist measures going on around the world right now. Europe is trying to figure out how they're going to react to the Inflation Re uh, Reduction Act as, a, as an example. Um, and then, you know, obviously you've got subsidies and other help in, in, in Asia as well. You've got um, this rejiggering of supply chains that a lot of companies are thinking about um, and taking action on, um, meaning building new factories in new places. Uh, and you're talking about trying to be uh, trying to make it through the energy transition, uh, really, at the same time. It seems to me all of this is going to cost a lot of money. All of that is, you know, perhaps 
uh, desirable from a national security and a national economy perspective and a political perspective. But again, does it point in your view toward structurally higher inflation environment than we have been in, in over the last 40 years where everything has been geared toward bringing costs down to as low as possible? Um, in other words, an inflationary environment that can't be ameliorated strictly through monetary policy um, and that we're going to have to live with that. So some of this money, I think, will be helpful on the inflationary side, and they're particularly the investment in infrastructure in the United States, right? We're going to spend $2 trillion improving our infrastructure. We're going to have better roads and rails. We're going to have more connectivity. We're going to, the ports are going to be better. All of that will lower logistics costs, will make the U.S. a more competitive place to make things and move things and buy things and sell things. And so that should actually bring economic activity. Um, and, and that should be good for the United States. So, you know, we can, some of that will be spent well, some of that might not be spent as well, but overall improving U.S. infrastructure should be actually a net gain for the U.S. economy, but also for inflation, because it just takes those couple points off of the logistics cost. So that should be helpful. Some of the other money that's in there, you know, some of the, especially the research and development money, that part has a chance to be anti-inflationary, um, particularly when you think about productivity, right? And, and, you know, governments are really the only organization in our economies that can go after basic research, that can go after those kind of quixotic, let's follow the lead for, for scientists. And you know what, you think you're investigating, you know, some kind of defense system. And you know what, you come up with the, the touch screens for Apple phones and you come up with GPS and, and things that are broadly applicable that bring in billions and billions of dollars to your economy because they're commercially viable in ways that when that scientist started or those scientists started, they had no idea. And only governments can really fund that, right? You, you know, Bell Labs once upon a time used to do things like that, but we don't have that yet because shareholders care and, and CEOs and boards of directors really care about the more, you know, quarterly or, or yearly results. So that part, and there's a big part of that in chips, there's part of that in IRA and the like. So that too should be helpful on the productivity side, but we can't measure it yet because it's gonna be quixotic. It's gonna be something that we, we can't imagine yet because it's not created yet. Um, the other parts of the money um, go back to this sort of trade-off of, do we want the most efficient for today's kind of economy or, do we want to change that economy and take it to a different equilibrium? And what we do know is that companies alone are not going to change it on their own to a different equilibrium or private investors and the like. You need governments to crowd in. If you're going to move from a you know, fossil fuel-based economy to a, you know, a non-carbon-based economy, there has to be some instigus, right? It has to be some kind of policy. It could be money and carrots, and that's what you see in IRA. It could be regulations. It could be like the carbon border adjustment mechanism that Europe is talking about. It can be a mix of these carrots and sticks to, to get people to move. In the short run, that's probably inflationary, right? Because you've got stranded assets on this side that are now worth nothing or worth very little. You're trying to, you have to spend money on the other assets until they kind of get up and running. And so that part too um, is gonna be somewhat inflationary. Um, and then, you know, in the, on the things that are not national security, that are the commercial things that we were talking about before, you know, China has been the place uh, for the last 10, 20 years where you were able to make those very cheaply, um, very affordably. Some of that is changing even without the national security side of things, right? China's just not that cheap anymore. You know, if you look at their demographics, 100 million people are going to leave their workforce over the next 15 years. I mean, that's more than the whole size of the Mexican workforce and many other countries, right? Size. So, so it is not going to get cheaper. It could get more productive. And I do think that's what the Chinese government is trying to push for is, you know, no one's buying more robots than China is. Like no one's investing more in automation than China is right now. So they're trying to change that calculation. But the model that kept low inflation that you were talking about for the last 20 years isn't going to be there despite the geopolitics, right? Unless you can find other places in the world. Um, and some companies are trying to do that, right? They're trying to go to Southeast Asia or they're going to Africa or they're searching for that, that low cost labor market. But overall, put this all together, um, some of this industrial policy is going to be inflationary. Some of it is not going to work. Um, you know, it's it's just just like the private sector, you know, just like venture capital, you throw things at the wall and some grow 10, 100x and other things, you know, fail. And so that is going to be the challenge, I think, for, for the U.S. government um, or the European government or 
China, for that matter, who's been investing hundreds of billions of dollars in similar kinds of industrial policies over the last decade. So talk a little bit more about the China situation, because clearly few countries in the world have benefited as much as China has from globalization. It essentially got rich uh, after it entered the WT, uh, WTO. Um, and even if the United States perhaps benefited more than anybody else in total, China has clearly become a world player thanks, uh, thanks to it. So they have to be as aware as anybody else is of the challenges that are now being, the headwinds that are perhaps um, uh, arrayed against them at this moment. They talked about their demographic picture and that they are trying to move up, therefore, the productivity of the, up the value chain, uh, investing more in robotics, and obviously trying to dominate in the key industries of the 21st, uh, 21st century. But in terms of what other countries are doing to diversify away from their reliance traditionally on China, how is China fighting back on that, particularly within its own region? And in your view, how important is it that the U.S. pulled out of TPP and also has not returned? And are we shooting an own goal? Uh, even if politically we just can't go into new trade agreements right now, what have you, in the long run, are we, are we shooting ourselves in the foot on, 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 on CPTPP? China has a whole bunch of carrots and sticks. And let me just talk about the carrots because it goes right to the point you were just saying. You know, as the United States over the last four plus years has pulled out of setting global trading rules, right? We pulled out of TPP, which became CPTPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Other countries have moved forward and they're setting the global trading rules. Europe has signed agreements with South America, with Canada. Africa has signed agreements with each other. And China is moving forward in particular in trying to create free trade zones where it is a big part of and where it really is, is the dominant player. So the most important I would say right now is RCEP, the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, which is a dozen plus countries in Asia, um, China's part, Japan's part, South Korea's part, as well as a lot of Southeast Asian countries. And what this agreement does is, I mean, does lots of things, but one of, I think, the most beneficial for China, frankly, and, and detrimental for the United States is it wraps up those rules of origin. So all the countries within can make parts and components and they can cross borders. And so it gets a, a lot of, it's doing a little bit. It's not, it's not as strong as the European Union, but in terms of how it does it, but it allows regional production to, to become much stronger and much, much more affordable, right? It lowers the cost for regional production. And it keeps others who are not part of this club outside. They have to pay tariffs, including the United States and, and others. So China has really spearheaded that and, and moved that forward with the ASEAN nations and others. Um, China's asked to join the CPTPP. We'll see if that happens. But, um, but they are going forward and creating these rules that will be beneficial to them and that leave the United States on the outside. And one of the challenges for the United States, I have to say, as we think about free trade and back to your politics and the question about politics and trade here is, you know, one of the disadvantages the United States has is we actually are parts of very few free trade agreements. So we actually have preferred access to very few global markets, to less than 10% of the globe's GDP, do we have preferred access, right? Tariff-free or the like. You know, in contrast, just, you know, to give you a contrast, Mexico and Canada are our neighbors. They have free trade agreements or preferred access to 60% of the globe's GDP. So when they send things to, you know, to parts of Asia, when they send things to Europe, they don't pay any tariffs. When U.S. companies send it from the U.S., when we export it, we pay tariffs, sometimes double-digit tariffs, 10 15%. And so that is, you know, one example, you know, if a car is assembled and exported from the United, from Mexico to Europe, pays zero tariff. If the same car is ex assembled and exported from the United States, 10% tariff, which basically means we can't sell cars in Europe, but Mexico can. So that kind of challenge, I think, is, you know, China is sees the advantage of, of creating these, you know, these zones where they have tariff-free access and, and other countries have tariff-free access to them. Um, and I don't think we see that yet, right? We are not talking about that in Washington on either side of the aisle uh, as market access, expanding our ability, being really a number one priority for the United States. Yeah, I want to stay on, on China for just a moment. You know, you uh, have talked about the, um, the importance of corporate leadership and, and what boards and CEOs are being forced into right now. And, and you know, it, it occurs to me that in, in most industries, maybe not the 20-year-olds who are running as things out in Silicon Valley, but, but you know, in most industries, you know, the CEOs and the boards, uh, the, the, the executive leadership teams kind of came of age 
in this era of globalization and probably expected more or less that something was going, you were going to continue to try to, you know, squeeze ever more efficiencies and, and opening of new markets and, and so on um, through, that, through that mechanism. People are being forced to, address, to confront this new paradigm that you're talking about. They're being forced to make these decisions very quickly without historical precedent. And you know, it's going to cost them an awful lot of money and it's going to be a lot of sunk time uh, as, as well, um, even more costly to undo a bad decision. So I'm wondering, and it, it's worth noting to the audience that obviously the Council on Foreign Relations has a sizable corporate uh, membership as well. So you do talk to CEOs and the like, and I'm wondering, you know, when you talk to them, you know, it, it strikes me. If you go back to pre-pandemic, uh, I remember sitting in rooms with 100 CEOs, and the question would be asked, you know, how many of you have been in China in the last 12 months? And basically, everybody raised their hand. And, um, but if, if they, then they asked the same question, how many of you have been to Vietnam in the last 12 months? And one person raised their hand, right? And, you know, as we look at where supply chains are moving to or where, where the sort of the attractive markets that everybody's talking about. It's not equally spread around the world, right? You hear Vietnam time and time again. You hear India time and time again. You hear Mexico. You hear Hungary, perhaps, you know. Um, but these are places that a lot of the leadership knows a lot less about than the time that they've invested in China. Are they going to be confronting a whole new set of political risks in your, in your mind Number one, just by getting into places they know less about. But secondly, is concentration risk in less developed markets that don't have the infrastructure or let's call it the, the political efficiencies slash autocracy that China has got um, that could create new problems down the road that are difficult to envision now because you've got this concentration risk? So part of the reason some companies are thinking about spreading out of China is the risk that they found in, in China, right? Which is somewhat a political risk, right? It's a political risk sometimes in China, right? Where you've come in with particular technologies or you've had joint ventures and then all of a sudden, you know, your company, your particular product, there's a Chinese, you know, competitor that, that is favored, that gets the state subsidy or, or the like. I mean, I mean China's still this huge market and you talk to CEOs, I talk to CEOs and, and Many people need to be there. In fact, they may be doubling down there because that's where the growth is going to be 10, 20, 30 percent. And especially now that China's reopening and and things are getting back to normal, there's be a boom potentially in consumption or in needs and the like. So so I think that the challenge of leaving China is is twofold today. One is there are a lot of things that China does exceptionally well, right, in terms of scaling up. I mean, one of my most favorite examples of this was during COVID is that in May 2020, so just a couple months after, you know, things, you know, shut down in, in, in right. the United States, in May 2020, China produced 100 million masks, so, you know, PPE masks, and that was more than the whole world had produced in the whole year before, just in one month, just in one country. So there is an economies of scale, there is an ability to scale up in China that's almost unprecedented anywhere else. So that's a risk for Hungary or Mexico, other places, they just don't have that ability. And you see that with iPhones or others, just that ability to scale impressively, almost no other country in the world, at least right now, has, has that ability. So that's one challenge. The other challenge of leaving China or scaling back in China is that it is this market, right? Even though demographics are changing for the next number of years, it's over a billion people with a rising incomes and, and it is the place where you see growth. So if you leave or even scale back, you may lose the toehold that you had or, or the footprint that you had. So I think that is the challenge. But the risk, and that's why people are talking about it in the boardroom, is either China decides to make it harder for you to work there or the United States and Europe make it harder for you to decide. So if you want to sell to both markets in an increasing number of sectors, um, not just the ones that we would think of as hard national security, in an increasing number of sectors, you may have to choose, right? And it's either because of, you know, in the U.S. congressional oversight of particular kinds of investments, whether it's the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act and, and worries about inputs that come into your supply chains, whatever they might be. So, so there are kind of this, this, you know, push where you have to balance those risks, the reward of staying with the risk of, of not being able to be in both places and you, you decide which side you want to be on. Um, now, if you whether your part is going out or all is going out and you're trying to find other places, sure, there's there's risks to new places. They won't be the same risks probably, right? The reasons that you're thinking about moving out of China, presumably you're looking at markets that 
attenuate that particular risk, whether it's higher labor costs or worries about your intellectual property or geopolitical risk. Um, so you're looking at countries that might be, you know, allies of the United States and Europe or, you know, have other kinds of elements. Um, but at least at the moment, there's no other huge country that has that ability to scale up and down in, in the ways that China has. Places could could get there, right? You people, you know, talk a lot about India being that place. It, we'll we'll see. You know, it's it's a quite closed country. It hasn't kind of done what China did. It hasn't really opened up. So we'll see that. If I had to guess, I think we are going to see. You know, I talked about the beginning where the story of the last forty years is more regionalization than globalization. I think what we're going to see is more and more regionalization. So if you're making for the European markets, you might stick closer there. If you're making for the United States, you might stick in the Western Hemisphere. If you're making for Asia, you know, you might move into Southeast Asia, but you're not going to have one big factory that's going to send out all over the world, right? You're going to do it, I think, for, for different places and you're going to you're going to spread out a little bit there. So this is where, you know, automation and other things come in is you don't need a huge labor intensive factory in some industries anymore where you would have had that 30 years ago. Right. Um, let, I mean, let me choose one textiles. Right. Apparel, we've, we've seen with different models that you don't need a huge factory in China or Bangladesh to make competitive products. And, you know, one of my favorite examples here is Zara, which is a fast fashion brand, half a trillion dollars of you know clothing sold every year. They produce 85 percent of what they make in Europe or around Europe, not in Asia. Right. So they have found a way with higher wages and environmental protections to be able to produce you know, to be the most profitable fast fashion company in the world. So there's different models out there that I think companies are going to have to experiment that with. That allows them too, to, uh, to be able to be responsive to changing consumer taste very quickly, correct? Yes, and that's, I mean, that's kind of the magic that they have is that they don't make these huge batches, they make smaller batches. So if you see a particular, you know, Zara top on your Instagram, you better go to the store right now because it's going to be gone in three weeks, right? Um, and that they've able to keep their margins real high because they don't discount, um, which happens to lots of those who produce in Asia. And then it takes six, eight weeks to get into stores. So, you know, it, it's it, it's impossible to have a discussion on this topic without bringing up Apple, of course, because Apple obviously in many ways was the or is the iconic American success story, uh, a phenomenal product, biggest market cap company in the world, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, with the sort of quintessentially American uh, creator in Steve, in Steve Jobs. And then all of a sudden, it has become an almost pariah in Washington because of its seeming inability to, uh, or unwillingness even perhaps, to get out of, um, to get out of China. But it also seems that, you know, China is, it, it hits all of the points that you just made um, that make China attractive. Its ability to scale up, uh, its ability to build um, extremely high-tech uh, componentry where precision uh, of manufacturing and, 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 and construction are absolutely uh, absolutely essential. Um, and it's a supply chain that, 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 that Apple didn't just go in there and rent. It has designed and built um, um, accordingly. But also, you know, it seems like during, this, during the pandemic, um, a lot fewer engineers and designers and, and, and others were shuttling back and forth every day from Cupertino to, to China. And Apple hired a lot more local talent at those higher level uh, positions and more value added positions um, so that your phone right now should probably say designed in Cupertino and China and built in China. Um, talk a little bit about these extremely high end products, whether it is you know high end car manufacturers or the apples of the world or whatever. Is it tougher for them, I assume, uh, also maintaining that they want to keep access to that 1.4 billion person market, of course. But is it more challenging for them to make that kind of a move than in lower, you know, lower value added type products in textiles and t-shirt manufacturing, et cetera? Yeah. You know, Apple is, right, it's, it's on one end of the spectrum because it is so complicated. There's so many parts. It's such a precision product and the like. But, but I think their challenges in moving parts out of China, which they have been doing, you know, it's just, it's a slower process, right? They have a little bit of India, they've moved some stuff to Mexico, they've moved things to Vietnam, they're starting to move things around. But I think it's a challenge more broadly for supply chains that we sort of forget when we when we talk about this in that, you know, sure, anybody can go 
to Mexico or Bangladesh and, and go find somebody to make your t-shirts. And, and some products are easier than others, but but when you form these supply chains, there's real people involved, there's real companies involved, there's real elements involved, and you have to build a track record and you have to build trust with people, right? You're showing up in a whole new country, you have to learn the rules, you have to understand the permits, you have to understand how banks work and finance and the person that you ask to make whatever product it is, they deliver on time at the right price and the right quality. And so whatever your supply chain is, from the most complex, like an apple, to the, you know, a bit, you know, easier to make, like, you know, t-shirts, all of that, there you have to build these, these networks. And once you find somebody that you actually trust, you know will deliver on time and do a good job at the right price, you're not going to want to change. Like, they're pretty sticky, these networks. And, you know, when we look back at the last 20 years, only one to two percent of sort of supply chains were moving uh, to new suppliers every year. So, you know, at the beginning, I think you had a number where a third of people are really considering moving their supply chains. And so, okay, it's not 90% or 100%, but if usually it's 1% and all of a sudden you have, you know, a third thinking I'm gonna move my supply chain, that's a huge flexibility that we just haven't seen for decades. And partly because so much of business, um, you know, we quantify it and we have models and we have algorithms and all that, but it comes down to personal connections and trust and experience. And, and that's part of, of the stickiness. And so, you know, Apple has a challenge of you need those personal trust and, you know, you've built up Foxconn or other suppliers over 20, 30 years. So they know exactly what you're thinking and they're involved in the making of things. You know, automotive is the same thing here. You look at tier one, tier two, tier three suppliers. Sometimes they're the ones with the patents that Ford and GM use, right? They're the ones who are making the composites that make brakes not weigh as much so that, you know, so you get better mileage to your each gallon and the like. But those relationships are, are really hard to break. And so, you know, I mean, interesting with Apple, they're bringing their suppliers who have been based in China and taking them to other places. So, you know, Foxconn has a huge factory on, you know, on the US-Mexico border and is expanding even more because Apple is wanting to use them. So, so I think as we think about this dance of, of suppliers and, and across supply chains, it, don't forget the difficulty in just starting over, even if it's a simple product. You have to, you know, and if you have a bad season because you chose the wrong supplier, you could go bankrupt if, you know, you don't get another chance at it sometimes. So, you know, you've talked about how you believe that the, the trend going forward is going to be continuing regionalization trends, right? Um, and that, you know, Europe, obviously, Asia, and then there's more benefits to be reaped in, in, in North America. I actually, before I get to my question, one, one thing you, you brought up earlier was the demographic picture in, in China and how they're going to lose 100 million uh, jobs over the next, uh, or working age people, essentially, over the next uh, 10, 15 years. Uh, we know that, you know, um, even, even countries that are still growing, that growth is slowing in, in parts of Southeast Asia uh, as well. Japan is a well-known story. Europe, where does North America fit in in the demographic picture um, from, your, uh, from your perspective? So of the three big blocks, demographics in North America are probably the best. Um, we still see, see growth in the United States and we see growth in, in Mexico. Um, we see growth in Canada because they have a pretty liberal immigration policy. They, they allow more people in. In fact, migrants are a big part of their population. So in that part, I think North America is, is a bright spot. Now, we all know the politics of immigration in the United States is somewhat complicated. Um, so, and, and it is migrants who tend to have more children um, who tend to really boost that, that overall uh, demographic picture for the United States. Um, so this could change and we could lose some of the benefit that we have vis-a-vis -vis the, um, the other areas around the world. But right now I'd say of the three big regional blocks, we have the best demographic. So, you know, as we head toward this next phase of regionalization, capitalizing on all of the, the variables that you've just been talking about over the course of our conversation, uh, I wonder what your thoughts are about some of the regions that have been or are not a part of those three major blocks. I'm thinking specifically about Asia, I mean, I'm sorry, Africa and, and Latin America. I know Latin America is a real specialty of yours. What's the opportunity here um, and, for those, and, and for those countries where you've got some pretty big economies like Brazil, as an example, um, or South Africa, Nigeria, uh, and, and the like. Um, how do you see them faring in this, uh, in this evolving environment? 
these are really the regions that were left on the sidelines um, of these last 30, 40 years. They didn't get the benefit. They were left at the ends of supply chains. You know, they sent out commodities and they bought back finished goods, but they didn't get at that meaty middle part, which is where the technology is, which is where the learning by doing is, which is how you sort of scale the socioeconomic and, and technological scales. Now, with this fluidity to supply chains today, you know, we're talking about some of this coming back to say North America or going to Europe or Asia, it could, it could go to these regions. Um, this is an opportunity because there is movement happening. So you opportunity to grab some of that. Um, and there's, they have some advantages, you know, we're talking about demographics, you know, Africa has the best demographics in terms of, of its age and, and how, you know, working age population for the next 30, 40 years. Nigeria is going to become the second largest population in the world in the next 20, 30 years, um, as it, you know, surpasses China. So there's a huge benefit here, but you have to harness that. And there's lots of things, you know, you need infrastructure, so logistics is cheaper. You need education, so all of these people can work in the kind of factories or jobs of the future or that are of the present even. Um, but I would say one thing I would add here is regionalization matters. You know, one of the reasons they were left on the margins where they didn't get to do some of the more interesting and, and you know, economically diversifying kinds of, of parts of supply chains is they didn't turn to their neighbors. Um, they weren't big traders in general. I mean, you look at trade today, 90% of global trade happens between Europe, the US and Asia. So the, all those other plights of the world, only 10% of trade. So it's, it's a small amount. So one, they need to trade more. But two, they need to trade different things. They need to trade not just the commodities. They need to not just bring back finished goods. They need to be able to create those things, to manufacture those things, to provide those services. And given the importance of economies of scale, of specialization, of these robust supply chains in other places, they need to find a way to hook into those. And I think the best way they can do that is to create some of them themselves, to come together. So, you know, Peru, Brazil, Argentina, Colombia, name your countries. None of them is going to have a closed car industry by themselves. Um, they tried that back in the 70s and 80s. It didn't work. But they could do a part of it. They could do part of an electric vehicle battery. They could do processing of lithium. There's parts that they could pick up. And if they did it together, then they would be able to bring some of that clustering that you've seen that have been so successful for Asian economies and, and others around the world. So well, let, let me close with kind of a big question. And I, I know this is a this is a big top-down question, and we're going to have your, your fearless leader, Richard Haas, on here in a couple of weeks. Uh, so I'll ask him about this as well. But, you know, if I, if I hear what you're saying, globalization is, is not going away. It's just going to continue to evolve and probably evolve more in, the, in, the, in this regional way. But we're going to continue to be trading with China. Things will cross the Atlantic, et cetera. Clearly, the, uh, the metals, minerals, and, 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 and whatnot that are needed for the energy transition are going to be moving across the, uh, across the oceans as well. The return, but, but, but part of what made globalization possible was, for lack of a better term, let's call it the Pax Americana, right? That, uh, that, that sort of global peace amongst the big major players in the world allowed for the multinational corporation to create this efficient, just-in-time, uh, supply chain and to open global markets around the world. What we're seeing now, of course, is the return of great power competition. Um, and do you think that the environment, the, the sort of the geopolitical and geoeconomic environment is going to continue to be an emollient one for the kind of, uh, the kind of trade that you're talking about? Or are there some real potential hurdles out there uh, that could really interrupt all of I do think there's hurdles and they're, they're appearing today. So I think, you know, what we call globalization, the, or I say internationalization, that's going to continue. It's just too efficient, um, it's too competitive, and it's too beneficial, right? We like to not pay a lot for clothes or cars or computers or whatever else it is, right? So that part, I think, will continue. But as you're, as you're pointing to, I think it's going to fragment from where it has been. Um, we're not going to see this level playing field that we've seen. And even then, people were more regional than global, but I think it'll become even more fragmented and, and regional. Um, that regionalization might be geographic. It might be you know, like-minded countries in terms of their politics or their views around the world, um, you know, sort of different alliances and the like, friend shoring and ally shoring. I think that will actually become a thing. Um, we'll start seeing people sourcing from various places and that. So, 
there will be disruptions, but I do think we're going to see a continuation of the internationalization, um, definitely for basic commercial products and, and goods and tourism and that sort of things. And even for the things that are more sensitive for national security, uh, we'll just find that, you know, the innovation, the ability to do things at scale will will matter and that will involve internationalization. So. Um, now, what this means for CEOs and others is it's going to be, uh, you know, rough sailing. You're going to have to change things up. And, and some things um, some things you'll see right now that are going to be in the sensitive crosshairs of, of geopolitics. Um, others may um, come up and, and, and get caught um, in ways that it's hard to imagine today, um, given where they stand on the commercial landscape. But what I do see is that it will still be international, but it will look different than it does today, a decade from now. Well, I think that really uh, that really captures it. It's going to be a very complex environment uh, for CEOs, for boards, and for other corporate leaders to to navigate, which makes work like the globalization myth uh, actually so important that people are out there thinking about these things, using the data that's available, um, and you know, and contextualizing it with the politics uh, that we are encountering uh, globally today. Um, Shannon O'Neill. Thank you so much for, for joining us today. Um, the book is, uh, is it's a great read um, for those who are trying to get perhaps a better understanding of where we are uh, and understanding where we are is, is integral to getting us uh, to where we're going. So take a look at the globalization myth. It's out now from Yale University Press. So there you have it. I'm Kevin Kajawara. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Teneo Insights. If you have any questions about any of the topics we cover, please reach out to us at TaneoInsights at Taneo.com. See you next time.